0: Welcome to Formula 101. I'm Peyton, and this is not your average race recap of Formula One races. I'm going to be talking about a lot of exciting things, both on and off the track, and I'm so happy you guys are listening with me. Uh, this is going to be a fun ride, so thanks for coming along. Hello and welcome back. This is the third installment of my mini series today, the ABCs. Of F1 that I'm doing in conjunction with my full length 30 minute episodes. So again, these are quick 15 minute kind of little lectures about F1. These will be interspersed between uh, those. So keep an eye out for both of them. But if this is your first time listening to one of these as a quick explainer, the reason I chose to do these little little episodes is really because uh, personally, I found that getting into F1 and understanding the kind of language of the sport was really hard. And there were a lot of complicated terms and jargon that I heard from commentators and drivers and team bosses. That I didn't understand and I found it hard to really have a full picture of what was going on because I didn't really speak that language. So these episodes, I'm wanting to break down these terms that you might hear in the least complicated way possible and make it easy so that the next time we turn on a race or we listen to a, you know someone else's podcast or, or read an article that we, we have a full picture and that we know what really is going on and can enjoy the sport that we love to the fullest. So I have already done two episodes of this. This is my third one. Today we're doing G through I in our list of ABCs. But before I jump in, I want to just touch on a few things. This is like my little announcement section in a way, kind of. So first off, the third season of Netflix's documentary series about F1, Drive to Survive, is set to drop around the middle of March. I think the 19th is what it is here in the United States, not sure about around the world. But also, I just finished reading, actually, Jensen Button's autobiography, which is called Life to the Limit. And I would highly recommend it for people looking for kind of a quick read about a great driver in history. It's fun. It's easy to read. Doesn't take that much time, but obviously he's got a lot of experience and he raced for a long time uh, and seems like a fun person to be around. So I would recommend that book as well as the next one I started, which is called The Winning Formula by David Coulthard, who was a Red Bull driver. And this is more of kind of like a, I guess I would say self-help or an advice book with a lot of F1 stories and anecdotes woven in throughout it. So it's a little different than Jensen's book, but it's still uh, a lot of fun nonetheless. Now to get to our terms, we're going to start off with G and the first one is G-force, which I know I'm sorry, another physics term. I am as confused with them as I'm sure a lot of people are but before I kind of relate it to F1, I want you to think about roller coasters and the feelings you get when you're being whipped around all of those loops and turns, how your stomach drops when you go down those, those drops on the ride, and how maybe you even feel a certain heaviness or also almost a weightlessness as you're moved around. Well, these feelings relate to the impact of G forces on your body. So in simple terms, G forces are physical forces that are equivalent to one unit of gravity, and in F1, these increase exponentially as the driver corners and accelerates and breaks. And g-force is produced by the surface of one object being pushed by the surface of another object, and it causes stress on both of those objects. So it's a measurement essentially of the object's acceleration, and it's expressed and measured through g's. So if you hear a commentator say, he hit four g's in the corner. They're talking about G-Force. And now it's something that's super important to not only F1, but just kind of engineering in general, whether that be astrophysics or science, you know, how fighter jets work all involve G-Force. And the F1 engineers, they really have to take this into account as they are designing the car to make sure it's stable and safe and secure. But the drivers also have a part to play in this area as well. So drivers do specific exercises like workouts to train for the G-forces that they'll encounter in a race or whenever they're in the car. So you may have seen photos of, I don't know, maybe Lando Norris or George Russell posting on their social media of them doing neck exercises. And they have these really like excruciatingly painful looks on their faces, but they have kind of like weighted straps around their forehead area. Their trainer may be on the other end, pulling that strap to increase the resistance. So that's all to strengthen their neck muscles. So if you look at the drivers on the grid and you look at, and you kind of compare them to an average person, you'll likely notice that they actually have thicker necks. So I would take a look at Nicholas Latifi in F2 versus coming into F1. You'll see a significant change in the size of his neck since F1 driver's experience a greater G-force than an F2. But how many G-forces can a human deal with? That's the question. How many can they experience? So humans can deal with localized G-forces in the hundreds for like a split second though. So someone slaps you on the arm, that may be like a hundred Gs, but that's only for a tiny amount of time. So anything sustained Whether that's around 15 to 16 grams for a sustained amount of time, that can prove to be fatal. So here are some examples in F1. In braking, F1 drivers experience about 5 Gs. It's about 2 when they're accelerating and 4 to 6 when they're cornering. So in Romain Grosjean's terrible crash last season, his G-forces registered at a whopping 53 Gs. But in Rabu Kubica's terrible crash in 2007, he hit 75 Gs. So these numbers are all taken from monitors in the car that measure this data. Now, the second G term is ground effect cars, which I feel like is probably something you won't hear a ton thrown around in normal conversation, but it's kind of important to understanding why the cars are constructed in the way that they are. So this was a series of alterations that was used to increase downforce on the cars. And it became more of a thing in the 60s and the 70s when engineers were in this kind of crazed search for more streamlined cars, faster cars. But after kind of multiple deaths of drivers, they realized that downforce was very much necessary to balance out these streamlined cars. So they changed things to make it similar to what my research described as an inverted airplane wing. And it seeks to draw the car towards the track rather than pushing it away. So Lotus in 1977 was actually the first to debut real ground effect cars. And they were actually using side pod skirts, which were bodywork extensions. And they created lower air pressure under the car and increased downforce without increasing drag. And so since then, obviously these skirts aren't used anymore, but they have been translated onto flooring aerodynamics of the car. And I know you're probably thinking the floors relate to aerodynamics of an F1 car. Yes, they do. Pretty much every portion of the car relates to making it go faster and increasing that downforce. So ground effect cars, while in their, you know, debut were super different and looked kind of odd, really laid the groundwork for a lot of the aerodynamic choices that we see today. Now I could mention here in the G words, graining and grip, but those relate to tires. And I talked about that a lot in a previous episode that is all about tires. So if you want to learn about those, please head back to that episode. And I want to move on to H words. So the first one is the halo. And again, I spoke about this in my previous episode uh, nine, which is called safety first. But I do want to reiterate a few things here, especially since I think it's such an important part of the sport. But this was a new part of the car that was introduced only in 2018. So it's still a new addition. And I always say that it kind of looks like the front of a flip flop with these two prongs that rise out of the front top of the car and they kind of wing back on either side of the cockpit and go back down into the car on these sides. So, to, But to put it more succinctly, because I just rambled, it's kind of a three-pronged bar designed to stop or deflect large pieces of debris from entering the cockpit and hitting the driver. And it was introduced as a way to limit injuries to the driver's heads. Because there was literally no barrier between the driver and a piece of, you know, a barrier flying directly at them. And there was initial debate over the halo, which I think is kind of wild, but, you know, change is hard. And so when it was introduced, there were a lot of split opinions. A lot of people were angry about the fact that by, by using the halo, it was putting an end to open cockpit racing and even complaining about the aesthetics of having the halo on the car. And so, but really, whatever you think about these things, the halo is here and it's here to stay. I think it has been massively powerful in saving several drivers' lives, and there have been crashes that have they would have been fatal had the halo not been in place. Now, the second H term is handling, and this doesn't apply only to racing. It applies to, frankly, all cars in general. So if you've played like Mario Kart or some racing game, and you know, when you get to the slides on the game where you choose your character and then you choose the car that they get to drive, and oftentimes there's like little barometers about their speed and their handling. Well, let's explain what handling is right here. So handling generally refers to how a car responds when it turns, and you may hear it thrown around a lot when it comes to sports cars or luxury cars, because that's often very important to the construction of those expensive ones. So some cars handle better than others. A car with better handling can go around corners or turns faster and is less likely to lose control if you swerve or make a sudden movement with the wheel. So you could essentially relate handling to the responsiveness in a car. So this has to do also with the suspension setup of the car and also involves the steering and the wheels. Now, when it comes to F1 cars, obviously all of this is measured and taken into account and fiddled with, and data is collected about it. All of that good stuff that we know F1 excels at. They ask questions like, how sticky are the tires? How fresh are they? Is the car perfectly balanced for this specific track or these conditions and the driver's preference? Is the suspension set up the right way? Is it the right stiffness? And so it also involves downforce and grip. And it's all about making sure the car is able to hit the apex and go around the corners quickly and efficiently. Now, moving on to our last section, these are the I words. The first one here is internal combustion engine or ICE. Now, this goes back to our discussion of power units and the actual engine of the car. But I'm not going to sit here and explain the mechanics of a car engine. You nor I have the patience or brain power for that right now. But the ICE is only actually one part of six that make up the entire power unit. So we have this internal combustion engine. There is the turbocharger, the MGUH, the MGUK, the energy store, and the control electronics, which are just a lot of acronyms that mean very specific, very different things. But all of these faculties put together offer the driver around a thousand brake horsepower when they race. Now, the reason it's called a power unit and not strictly an engine is because of the hybrid and electric components that have been introduced. So these kinetic energy recovery systems that deal with electricity and as the name says, energy, mean that they aren't strictly fueled by gas or petrol. All of this change was really introduced around 2014. So these engines also have regulations on them. You can't just fiddle with them constantly and experiment. Plus, you don't have an unlimited supply of engines. There are penalties that the FIA doles out if you have to replace your power unit at certain a certain number of times. I think since 2015, the magic number has been four power units used in a season. That's the limit. And anything beyond that incurs a penalty of 10 place grid penalties. Now, lastly, we have the installation lap or the in lap. And okay, I know I've mentioned quite a few lap terms. First off, there's not a ton of I terms that I could have used for this, but I also feel like there's a million and one ways that commentators refer to the few lap types that racers do. And you know, you gotta know what they mean. So the first one is an installation lap, and this is a lap done on arrival to the circuit. They are testing functions such as the throttle and the brakes and the steering before they head back to the pits without crossing the finish line. So McLaren actually defines this and says it's a medium speed one lap run with the cars coming straight back to the pit lane at the end. And it allows them to make sure the car feels good underneath them, assess any problems right off the bat. You know, it's a warm up in a sense. Now, the second one is a in lap, and this is when a car is about to come into the pit lane. So this is primarily something that occurs often during qualifying when they've gone out for their flying lap, which I defined in the last ABC's episode. And then after they cross the line for the lap and have been told to come into the pits next. So this would be defined as their in lap. And in contrast, an out lap is the lap when the driver rolls out of the garage. So they're already past the finish lane in the pits and they have that first lap to get the tires warm and up to temperature and get ready to head over the start finish straight and get on with their flying lap. So that is it. That is our quick rundown for the day. Again, this was G through I terms and the ABCs, and I will see you in two weeks for a new full length episode.